It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here with uh, the latest security news, including an update on Microsoft's updates and a look at QR codes, how they work, what they mean, and what the implications are for security. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 382, recorded December 12th, 2012. QR codes. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And don't forget to get a free copy of Brandon Sanderson's Legion at audible.com slash Sanderson. It's time for Security Now, the show that uh, protects you and your loved ones online. It sounds, it's starting to sound like you're some, you know, Commander Gibson is here from the United States Mounted Police uh, with a tip about uh, online hoaxes. No. Actually, I think GRC is an acronym for, like, the Canadian... Is it really? Mounted Police oh, or something. Funny. Yeah, there is a, there's a GRC <laughs> acronym for Canada that's something about... Police and horses, or something. <laughs> well, he's not. I used, to, I used to get that a lot. He's not mounted on a horse. He's not wearing nope. a, a red wool uniform. He's not wearing a nope. uh, a, a, a um, Smokey the Bear hat. But in his Atari T-shirt, he does represent our last best hope for safety online, <laughs> Mr. And Steve if that's Gibson. That's the case. Betty, but everybody, everybody, just get under your desk. Get it's getting worse. Desk. It's getting bad out there, Steve. Uh, well, we're going to talk this week about something that's been on my list of things to talk about for quite a while, and that's QR codes. They are increasingly ubiquitous. They're those, you know, everyone probably even knows what they are. They're those little square barcodes um, containing we don't know what. And that's, you know, therein lies the problem. Um, if you If you Google QR as in quick response that's what qr stands for quick response codes space danger or malware or anything like that you get pages of people beginning to recognize that this is the latest route of of exploit and in fact i was reading one article when i was just you know getting myself full of background or stuff um about you know but so that this reporter saw a little qr code sticker on the seat in a subway train and I mean without any didn't say what it was it was just there was that little little grid matrix and it's like ooh I really want to scan that oh oh <laughs> find out oh. find out what it danger, is danger danger so um I want to talk about uh sort of cover the whole spectrum one of the cool things that I have learned and it will it'll be fun to share is there's much more obvious structure to it. I mean, obviously it's structured. We we can look at it and our brain is very good about it. But there are a couple details which after I tell you about them, you will 
never not be able to see them, and you do not see them now. And 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 as as with anything, if if you don't know what something, if you don't, if you don't know anything about something, like imagine you couldn't read and you looked at a page, it would just look like nothing. I mean, you you wouldn't see them any meaning there. But once you understand the shape of alphabet characters, then you look at it and it's like, oh, suddenly you you lock onto it. And similarly, by explaining the structure of the QR code, just because it's fun, everyone will be changed. They will. <laughs> Wow. Then you know you'll you'll be familiar with it. You'll yes. look at it, and it'll mean some. It'll mean it won't you won't, won't won't be able to read it, but it'll, you'll understand much more about it than you do now. And so that's sort of one part of the fun. And then, of course, we'll talk about what's happening because it is a it is becoming a problem. There there is this we you know it's the typical tension that exists between convenience and security. And it's a little bit related to the problem we, that we discussed over on the on, on the near field communications side with NFC tags, because although these won't jump out and bite you the way radio can, um, you know we can't read them. Our, our our machines read them, and often by the time they do, it's too late. Right. So there are some things that can be done to protect ourselves. So. Um, We'll have fun uh, catching up on this week's news and then uh, and looking into these wacky little square tags. I mean, I've got one. I just looked, you know, here on the back of my my Starbucks espresso. They're everywhere. Bag. You can't get you know, away oh, from yeah, them. Oh, exactly. yeah, exactly. They're just, you know, they're cool. And, and I, they and they were invented by a car company in Japan. Oh. Like, you know, 18 years ago. So they've been around for a long time. And But, boy, have they – well, now – and, of course, the enabling the enabling technology was cameras. Camera right. phones, camera because phones, yeah. you know the, the the famous comment is the best camera is the one you have with you. Right. Um, and now with cameras and phones, and have, has anyone figured out why Philippe Kahn thinks he invented that? By the way, he that, did. That by the way, thing just sticks in my brain. He did. How, how did he invent the camera phone? He was uh, many years ago. Uh, he uh, was uh, had his baby. His baby was born probably was 10, 15 years ago. I actually talked to Philippe about this, and he said, and he was taking pictures. Thought, boy, it really be nice if there's some way to quickly send this uh, to uh, the uh, family and friends. Uh. And he invented Philippe. Now, uh, Steve and I are of a vintage where we think of Philippe Kahn as the founder of Borland International, which was yep. a great company, uh, which made a Pascal called Turbo Pascal that kind of transformed high high level programming. Oh, and he really upset Bill Gates by destroying Microsoft's language model. Yeah. Remember, Microsoft was charging eight hundred dollars for a C compiler, and what was and Turbo said, Pascal was like fifty bucks, right? It was forty nine, forty nine dollars, <laughs> and it just blew the socks off the. Oh, industry. and it was super fast. It was compiled <laughs> and almost... Bill never forgave Philippe. It just completely uprooted his whole, you know, his whole plan. He's a, he's also a musician, as I think people know. Plays, I think, the yep. saxophone and a pilot and a pilot and a very these days avid sailor. So. He um, he invented this technology called LightSurf in 1998. So this gives you an idea of how he could be there. In fact, this is wow. an image that he took of his daughter's birth in 1997. I remember we interviewed him uh, on, the, I think it was probably the screensavers about this. And this was one of the first images taken and sent by camera phone. Very cool. What's neat is uh, LightSurf technologies... I think 
uh, had its bit of code in every single camera phone for many, many years. No kidding. Everybody licensed wow. it Wow! Uh, from him. Um, VeriSign bought him in 2005, according to Wikipedia. Mm. He then started something called Full Power. Philippe is actually, we, you know what, we got to get him on, uh, on the He's show. He's a great guy. He and I used to have breakfast every year at Comdex. He'd, oh, that's when I was, doing, he, I was doing the column for InfoWorld. And so it was, there was always a, you know, have, have breakfast with the reporter and tell him all the wonderful new things your company is doing. So get ready uh, for this. So, okay, Starfish, remember this, it was a Turbo Pascal. I remember Starfish. Then yep. he did Starfish, uh, which I think was... Um, uh, an early synchronization. I mean, he was he he's this guy's been always thinking ahead and has been disruptive every time. He created TrueSync, which was the first over-the-air synchronization system in mm. 1994. Sold it to Motorella for for 325 million in '98. Founded oh, LightSurf, which he sold to Verisign for an unknown amount of money. But I would say he's probably on his second billion now because his new company, his current company, created something called Motion X. And if you use a Nike Plus, if you use a Fuel Band from Nike, if you use uh, the Up Band from Jawbone, if you use a Fitbit, they all contain Motion X, which is the hardware that senses your motion. Wow! And uh, and ties it to GPS. And it also he has software, which I the best uh, GPS software on the uh, iPhone and iPad, which I recommend all the time, which is Motion X GPS. That's Philippe Kahn. So this guy, he's got to be on his second billion by now. I mean, this guy is brilliant. And it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. No, it couldn't. And it's nice to also to see that he wasn't just a one-shot deal. Oh, boy. Um, you know, he I should mean, get he... more credit, frankly. I don't know why he doesn't get more credit. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's had four companies, each of whom have disrupted, transformed wow. um, uh, technology. He, by the way, is an avid sailor. The reason I know that, we, went, we had a company sale a few years ago. Um, on a beautiful boat, Humphrey Bogart's uh, old yacht. Well, he, he he's a competitive sailor, too. Yeah. So this team goes by, vroom, and they're all hanging out <laughs> on the side, and they're wearing rubber suits. And the uh, skipper says, yeah, there goes Philippe Kahn's boat. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, he's, you know, he's really serious. He's out here every day with his paid team of sailors. He's very wow. serious. And I'm not talking America's Cup sailing. It's like really uh, smaller boats and hardcore. Like you are, this is like they were, they were, they were hanging out. Their heads were hitting the water as they're hanging out, and the boat is at least you know thirty degrees. Unbelievable. Well, and Philippe was always a big guy, so if he leans off the side of the boat, he's going to do be <laughs> I, some serious ballast. I didn't see Philippe, but uh, <laughs> anyway, how, we got off on a tangent. We're going to take a break, and we got tech, uh, security <laughs> news for you in just a bit, and then we'll explain QR codes. We will indeed. And it's and I'll I'll submit for your and I'm sure you'll talk about this, but the problem with QR codes is not QR codes, but the implementations on the phones. But uh, we'll talk about that. Just a second. Let's talk about Audible right now. I know you're not an Audible uh, user, and we're gonna we're gonna win Steve over one of these days. Audible.com. It's the best audiobooks ever in the world. When I'm in traction, <laughs> we're gonna have to break his legs. I believe you've just told us we're gonna have to break his legs to get him to use uh, Audible. This could be arranged. Uh, no, we wouldn't do this, but you will love it. You will you will come to me, I swear, and you'll say. 
Boy, I wish you told me about this sooner. Why didn't you make me do it? <laughs> Why yes, didn't you me. tell me about Audible.com? 100,000 titles. Over, actually, 100,000 titles. I haven't counted in a while. Because there's new, there's literally, every month, there's probably hundreds if not thousands of new books added to Audible's collection. These days, pretty much every publisher does audiobooks. And when they do audiobooks, that means they put them on Audible.com. Because it really is the primary way people listen to fiction, nonfiction, uh, science fiction, romance, arts and entertainment, comedy. You can even, with an Audible subscription, you'll even get a newspaper or a magazine each day. The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, the New York Times. I mean, it's just amazing. Audible is fantastic. I want you to try it out. You know, the big bestseller right now in the last seven days, what would it be? The Hobbit. Because everybody everybody says, oh, I want to read that again. If you have not read The Hobbit, please do not go see the movie Friday. You'll make me mad. You make Wait, me- isn't the movie a prequel? So no. you really should see the movie first? No, the movie's no freaking prequel. Although there is apparently oh. a 20-minute history of the dwarves at the beginning. We're going to get a nine-minute uh, look at the next Star Trek movie, for one thing. Yeah. They're really. Yeah. We we bought. I bought uh, twenty tickets. Come up because I bought twenty tickets for the. Uh, oh, I'm already going with Jen. On oh, Silent I figured Friday. I'll right. be there. Oh, you're going opening day. Yeah. Yep. So uh, listen to the Hobbit before you go see the movies because you don't want to spoil the. It's a wonderful book. Eleven hours. This could be yours for free and yours to keep forever. Um, just I could go on and on. They've of course got all three: of The Lord of the Rings. They have a variety of Hobbits. Uh, there's The one that's read by Rob Inglis is the full Hobbit, but I think they have some dramatizations. Would yeah. that be Hobbitai or Hobbitses? Hobbitses. Hobbit, Hobbit, it's be Hobbitses. Yeah. There's a dramatization if you want to do the fast one. This is four hours. Let me play a little bit of this. Was responsible for so many quiet lads and lasses going off on mad adventures, anything from climbing trees this is from to the BBC. elves or sailing ships to other shores. Bless me, I beg your pardon, but I... Actually, see the movie instead of listening to that. Or read the book. <laughs> <laughs> read the book. Read the book. Uh, here's another... There's several dramatizations. Here's another one. Let's see. I don't know. Maybe this one will be better. This has a nicer album art. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Ah, in, and, uh, not a nasty, dirty widow. Now we're talking. Nor yet a dry, sandy bell. My whole this is the BBC one. Comforting. It had a perfectly round door painted green. You could get that for free. There's all sorts of stuff. That's the BBC Radio 4 dramatization from 1968. Predates uh, all the various movie versions. I tell you, I am a huge fan. Interested in award winners? So many great books on here. Wolf Hall, I read, is fantastic. Fantastic. And uh, Hilary Mantel just published the sequel to that. One of the best books of the year, according to the New York Times. I can go on and on, but I I won't. Did you see Lincoln? The book it was based on, Team of Rivals, is on Audible. George Kern's good one. Yeah, what a great book that is. See, the thing about Audible is I don't, you know, people don't have time to read. I didn't have time to read. I had stopped, you know, I read occasionally. I get a few pages a night. But once I found Audible, I listened on my commute at the gym, I'm cleaning house, and I, suddenly I've got two or three hours of books every day. And I just, and suddenly you know stuff. You, and you know stuff. Yeah. Daniel Pink's got a new one. To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others. I love Daniel Pink's stuff. That comes out at the end of the year. Anyway, go to audiblepodcast.com. Oh, I got two credits. I'm excited. Audible. 
<laughs> I love it when my credits renew. See, I have a subscription. So if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now, you'll sign up for the gold account. That's a book a month subscription. And that means every month you get a credit and you go, oh, I get a new. But the first one's free. The first credit is free. The canceled anytime, pay nothing, and it's yours to keep forever. And I think you're going to find the hardest thing about Audible is picking that one book because there's so many great ones. Here's one. How to Deliver a TED Talk. The Secrets of the World's Most Inspiring President. See, I need to listen to that so because someday Ted may call me. And I want to know how to, how to deliver a TED Talk. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Give it a try today. And by the way, if you don't if you don't want to sign up for the account and you just want to see what it's like to listen to a book, uh, Brian, uh, sorry, Brandon Sanderson's Legion is still available. Really great sci-fi novella. And you don't need a trial, a credit card. You don't, it's just, even if you're a member, it's yours free. Audible.com slash Sanderson. Audible.com slash Sanderson. Wait. Great. Slash, slash security now. No. So there's two URLs. I understand your confusion. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now to sign oh, up for an account. Oh, okay. But if you just want to try the novella, audible.com slash Sanderson. And this is even for existing Audible subscribers. Anybody. Just download it so you can give it Got a try. It. You can give it a try. So, um, go ahead, um, Steve. Your team nudged me gently nudge, last nudge, week nudge, saying, nudge. you know, Steve, uh, we need some content from you for the Security Now Christmas special podcast. Because yeah, I ain't working on Boxing Day. Uh-huh. And um, I thought that I had... Something that I thought would be really fun. Cool. Back in 1990, 22 years ago, Spin White, Spin White, Spin White, Spin White (laughs) was relatively new. Um, We had a relationship with the largest software distributor in the world. This is before the internet. There and so software was sold across the counter in boxes by wonder, Egghead. And yeah, Fry. I wonder what happened to Ingram and all of those big developers. Well, and and my relationship was was with the largest uh, um, distributor called Softcell. Softcell, yeah. And they bought Ingram Micro and or wait Micro D. I don't know. There were there were they, there was a period of coalescing. Anyway, um, Softcell did a multi-city tour that they called the Soft Cell Soft Teach, where they took some of their selected vendors and um, and I mean, it wasn't free. We paid for the privilege, but it it was a privilege to to go to essentially like little mini tech conferences and explain our products to all of the retailers in the area. And I don't know what moved us to do this, but we taped them. <laughs> and oh. we ta- taped me um, explaining how and why hard drives die <sighs> and how Spinrite interacts with that. And, you know, and, and so we and I had all of the tapes from Chicago's. Uh, uh, it was a Saturday and Sunday I think like there were la- there was like they were labeled Sunday number seven and Sunday number nine. And I remember I was exhausted by the end of the day. Anyone who sees them will know why I was exhausted because I'm quite animated. Anyway, I found the tapes. 
the camcorder that recorded them would no longer play them because I had it too. Then I, they, it was high eight format back pre-digital. You know, this is truly 1990. Um, I had a high eight deck. It refused to to load the tape, but good old Amazon came to the rescue. I found a used high eight camcorder for one ninety nine. Wow! wow. I, I want to borrow got, that from you because I have a bunch of high eight tapes. <laughs> I got it and ran it through my analog to DV converter, trimmed it, fixed it up, compressed it, and shot it up uh, to you guys um, uh, Monday. That's awesome, Steve. So what I want to do is maybe get with you Saturday or Sunday after your tech guy, and we'll just do a little 10-minute intro. Good. And then got something very fun. We could do it after SpinRite this week or next week, too, would be another thing, or before SpinRite. That might be okay. better because I think we're doing some Gizwiz stuff on Saturday. So okay, perfect. Yeah, we'll just do it during yeah, the regular. The only thing I want to say is that it really that this normally I really try to focus, as our listeners know, on conveying information that works just with audio because I recognize that we're still hugely oriented toward people who are just as you were saying with the with the audible uh, technology who are listening to the podcast. Unfortunately. I have I have a blackboard, and I am using my body a lot. Like when I explain about the life cycle of a screw, which is trying to hold the stepper motor in place, um, or or explaining how tracks drift. Um, you know, my arms are flying around. So this particular holiday special really needs to be seen to be appreciated. You might listen to it first and then think, okay, I got to see what he was doing because (laughs) there's also a lot of laughter from the crowd and you may not know why they were laughing at me if you weren't seeing it. That's great. Oh, I'm so thrilled, Steve. Thank you. I think it'll, it'll be fun. And my God, my hair was black. Oh, Uh, I I had as much as I wanted of it. It It's incredible. So it was a little blast from the past. It's quite fun. And, oh, and no matter how techy anyone is, how much they think they know about hard drives, I'd forgotten that some of the detail that I went into that explains things that, that I'll bet you there isn't a single person listening to this who doesn't actually learn something that they didn't know. So it's it's got something there, too, in, in addition to being me making a... Well, I'm not an idiot of myself, but you know, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. This is exciting. What a great idea, Steve. So um, we are just past. This is Wednesday, the second Tuesday of the month, which, of course, we know is Microsoft's day to drop their their monthly packet of updates on us for Christmas. Um, they had seven updates fixing 10 security holes, holes most rated critical uh, in Windows, in Word, and Exchange Server. Um, and there was even a crazy one. There was a file system folder naming parsing vulnerability that affected XP, Vista, and Windows 7 so that if you browsed in Windows Explorer to a specially named folder, you could have your machine taken over. So you don't see those often. And there was something interesting that, you know, fits my theory of new is not always better which was a critical patch for IE 9 and 10, but which did not is not a problem in any earlier versions of IE. So Microsoft 
added some things. Some of the new stuff they added in IE9, which carried over into 10, has a problem. And so they're they're fixing that. I mean, that's just, you know, it's it's as we've said many times, code that is been pounded on more is has been more pounded on. <laughs> and that's a good thing. Uh, at the same time, Adobe is updating both Flash and Air. They're, um, they're, you know, essentially synchronized technologies for rendering Flash content either in a browser or in a standalone app. Um, and you can check, you know, if it's across the board. Windows, Mac, Linux, and Android all need to be updated, although the Flash players in IE10 and in Chrome should be auto-updating. So those you don't need to worry about. But uh, And... Typically, Flash is notifying you or Firefox is telling you you've got an obsolete version. And so in general, we're getting this to happen more often. But adobe.com slash software slash flash slash about will verify if you go there that the, the Flash player version you're using in your browser is current. Um, and, then, uh, and, and then for Air, it's adobe.com slash Air will do the same thing. And I noted something in the, uh, this is the, if it can be done, it will be done department, which is we now have a relatively sophisticated botnet whose command and control servers cannot be found because they're using Tor. (laughs) So it turns out that the Tor project implemented reverse anonymity. They implemented something called Tor Hidden Services, which provides for servers the same kind of protection that Tor has traditionally provided for clients. That is, normally it's a client who uses the Tor system to hide themselves from from their activities out on the public Internet. And at some point, it occurred to the people who now manage the Tor network that, hey, how about people who want to offer services that they want to hide? So the reverse process. So that exists now in the, in the Tor system. And I made a note to myself that, ooh, that sounds like a fun podcast to, to look into how it does that because we understand how the client gets hidden. But it's a whole different problem to hide a service, yet still be able to find it. So what do you mean when you think about it? So there is a botnet called Skynet, which has been found. It's about 15 megs of stuff, um, but hidden among the files that lead people to believe it's not bad are a conventional Zeus bot, and even the fact that we're now using phrases like conventional Zeus bot is a little troublesome. Oh, yeah, just, you know, it's your run-of-the-mill conventional Zeus bot. Um, there's also a Tor client for Windows in there. And then a the CG miner Bitcoin mining tool with the OpenCL DLL, which the CG miner uses to interact with the CPU and GPU for high-performance Bitcoin hashing. So apparently, this is a, a botnet, which, among other things, is a distributed Bitcoin mining technology 
so that people are stealing cycles from <laughs> from you know unwitting users CPUs and GPUs to use them in the background for uh, minting bitcoins uh, all being being hidden and unable to find thanks to this new service uh, Tor Hidden Services. So I thought that was interesting. And we talked about several times the iOS universal, I'm sorry, the unique device ID, the UDID, which which it became clear first to Apple and then to the industry was being abused. It was a per-device tag, which all iOS apps were able to get. And they, they just used it, even though Apple said, you know, you really shouldn't. The app said, yeah, but there it is, and you're giving it to me. So as we mentioned before, um, back in March, Apple began, after saying don't use it, they began refusing submissions from the, uh, to the store for apps that were using it, and they made it very clear it was going to go away at the end of iOS 5. Well, it did, and so app authors had plenty of notice and time to stop using it. And the problem with it was, was not only that it was, it did tag to your device, but it, what, what, what happened was all the apps running in a given device received that same UDID. It was the device ID. So there, it, there was a problem with apps and, and tracking systems comparing notes and being able to cross-associate apps to a single device. So in iOS 6, Apple formally removed the API, the application programming interface that allowed access by the app running on iOS to that device's ID. They replaced it with something called the IDFA, which stands for ID or Identifier for Advertisers. So very explicit, IDFA, the Identifier for Advertisers. And what's different about this is that each app now receives a unique per-device IDFA, but every app running in the same device gets a different one, and there is no way to associate them. So, so, the, so the apps still get tracking information in as much as it's a unique ID for the device, but the the problem of apps um, recognizing that they're on the same device from the tag is is solved because each app gets a unique one and there's no way to to interconnect them. Now, this can be turned off for anyone who wants to, but you, once again, you got to dig down a little bit, and it's not obvious where it is. I found it after realizing that it was there. And in fact, it was some listener of ours who kindly tweeted me, hey, Steve, that's, you know, look what I found. And he sent me two pictures. It's like, whoa, where is that? And so I found it. You go to, of course, in the settings icon in any iOS device, phone or pad, under settings in the general tab or the general category, then you've got to go to 
about, which has a whole bunch of stuff, scroll all the way down to about, and at near the bottom, you'll see a new word, advertising. It's like, huh? So if you select advertising, then that takes you to a an otherwise blank page that just has one thing on it. And I was looking, the, uh, looking at it thinking, well, Apple, you, normally you're kind of helpful. You let us, you know, you put some text in there to say this is what this does, if it's on or if it's off or what it means and so forth. There's nothing there. All it says is limit ad tracking, and it's normally off by default, meaning not that ad tracking is off, but that the limiting of the ad tracking is off. <laughs> so in other words, you want to turn it on if you want ad tracking to be limited. And so what this cleanly and globally does is it denies this IDFA new feature to the apps running on your device for the purpose of tracking. And that, so there is no longer any way for them to lock on to, for apps in your device to lock on to your device uh, directly. And I thought that was a cool feature, so I wanted everyone to know about that. Otherwise, it's you know it's not easy to find. Um, also in the news this week, a group calling themselves Team Ghost Shell um, did what they sort of called end-of-year house cleaning. They had all these pesky accounts and record details that they had accumulated from a breathtaking range of networks. NASA, the European Space Agency, uh, Japan's Aerospace Exploration Agency, Interpol, the Pentagon, the Federal Reserve in the U.S., the FBI, a defense contractor known as L3 Communications, and more. Um, there's a paste bin link, which um, I've got in my notes here. Um, you could probably find it if you just Google Team Ghost Shell white fox they are calling their project project white fox um the paste bin page is <laughs> it's rather stunning you it scrolls on and on and on with an enumeration of the networks that they have penetrated and pulled account and record details from totaling 1.6 million accounts and and records which they have then sprayed all over the internet and they've got links to them all with mirror sites and backups and things. So it's just, you know, <laughs> becoming sort of sad that, uh, that our networks are as porous as they are. And I, I saw a little bit of news that I wouldn't have normally brought up, but it, because it's something that we talked about years ago, Leo, and I was stunned this thing is still going on. Remember... I think she was 24 at the time. There was a, a young mom with a couple kids. I think it was, her name was Jamie Thomas Rassett. Hmm. And she was, that, she was that woman who somehow got Kazaa. Remember Kazaa? Yeah. I mean, this is how old this is. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She I got Kazaa on her laptop or her computer, whatever. And there were 24 songs that were there that... She didn't download. She wasn't intending to pirate. I mean, she was like completely innocent. And the RIAA. Well, I'm not sure she was completely innocent. Okay. Well, 
They stomped on her. Yeah. And there's no question about the that, but we don't know if she was. $222,000. Right. Is what they want for these in in as compensation for her having these 24 songs. The point is that the Supreme Court of the United States has been asked now oh. to review wow. the the jury's decision that she needs to pay the RIAA $222,000. I wouldn't expect now, any uh, change, but go no, ahead. No, no. And the Supreme <laughs> Court has... Them. Yeah, and the Supreme Court, no, not, not the current court. No. Uh, and the current court has declined to hear two other RIAA-related file-sharing cases in the past, which they've been asked to review. Um, and and the petition that that her attorneys have provided to the court seems a little odd it's it takes the argument that the damages are unconstitutional yeah well no and i think like, that's the only argument they can make with the supreme court yeah. yeah okay and i don't think she's i i think that they stopped contesting her guilt i think it's more like the damages are out of control here your honor yeah yeah how is this fair <laughs> but i don't suspect that'll be changed yeah no so um i saw this and again sort of smiled uh I put the the headline as IPv6. Anyone? Um, Hello. A, there there was a a sort of a uh, a helper body, for lack of a better term, set up in the UK. Uh, the BBC reported this. A body was set up to get the UK moving over to the Net's new addressing system. That group has been shut down in protest at the. Complete indifference to its work by the UK. Uh, the group was called Six UK, which was set up to advise ISPs and firms about the move from version four of our IP addressing scheme over to version six. But it's been wound down after its board realized that its work was futile without official backing, which was never forthcoming. Um, and the the director, uh, Mr. Sheldrake, was quoted as saying, well, the fact that no government website sits on an IPv6 address might be part of the problem. So the UK doesn't have what we have had over here in the US, um, which is our government uh, famously mandating that uh, people that work with them must support IPv6. And so... You know, that's one way to get this to move, I suppose. Uh, under the category of Looney Tunes, <laughs> <laughs> we have the continuing adventures of John McAfee, um, who, since we last spoke of him last week, has been arrested. You remember that last week, uh, some pictures that were taken of him by Vice magazine, who are now being referred to as his past or his ex-friends at Vice Magazine. Uh, they contain metadata which had the GPS coordinates of his location at the time the photo was taken. Um, he's now accusing them of orchestrating his arrest so that they could be <laughs> there to, to report on it. Who knows? I'm not taking a position on that one or the other. I don't know. Yeah. So... He was he was arrested, and the first judgment from the judge was that he had entered um, Guatemala illegally, 
and was going to be expelled as a consequence back to Belize, where John was concerned that he would be found having accidentally hung himself, unquote. Um, But he did actually say that. Um, But it turns out that John suddenly started having small heart attacks. Oh, wow. so, So we are led to believe. There's been some question as to whether they may have been, you know, asymptomatic heart attacks. But, you know, may, the claim was that it was over the stress of all of this. The heart attacks, as we're, we're, we're you know, <laughs> which may have occurred, uh, were at least enough to get him hospitalized, which were also long enough to get his attorney to find another judge to overturn the the original uh, declaration, and it, because it turns out that entering Guatemala, as John did, is not illegal. And so he's now been released. He's apparently also feeling a lot better. <laughs> and he's on his way home to the U.S. So uh, his blog is a continuing adventure for anyone who has some time to kill. And uh, he, he says he's flying to Miami. So oh. if you're in Miami... Watch out. Here he comes. It's always uh, something. Oh, and a quick little update on uh, uh, the uh, what I am calling the Quiet Canine Project. Uh, I just didn't like Hush Puppy. I mean, I loved Hush Puppy, but it was just too generic. It's like, what is you it? Know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the Quiet Canine That's good. sort of talks. I like it. It this talks about it the is. benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Many people are building them. Um, I wanted to let people know that even internationally, I've heard from people in the UK who ordered the so-called launch pad, which is the the little development platform that I'm using, for $4.30 with free shipping. It comes the next day or maybe in two days, even if you're in the UK. Someone in Australia got it overnight. So even internationally, it's still $4.30. And they pay the shipping. So a super bargain. Um, the the Portable Sound Blaster Group, as it is still called over on Google, is going strong. I've got source code posted. People are assembling the source. They've got the chips programmed and generating um, uh, square waves to drive the amplifier. They're building the amplifier. Some people are using Arduinos to generate the signal. Some just using CMOS. So there's a lot happening. I've heard from many people who have dog barking problems, either their own dogs, they would like a training device that is more humane than whatever they're using currently um, or, in a, or maybe more effective, and people with neighbors. So um, I, I'm now working on the pages to get them up on GRC um, to, so that we'll, there'll, there'll be a, a permanent place to have the documentation for the project. And once I get a sense for um, the size of the beta test group, I, I plan to build a bunch of these myself and and provide them so that I can get some feedback about how they work. So uh, we're moving forward on that. You me- mentioned last week that you were not crazy about uh, Google Groups, that it changed a bit. Do you know that Google Plus has now added communities, which is probably yeah, why and, Google Groups was kind of left uh, on the side and of the it, road? Does it give us – I looked at communities, but it, I couldn't see any sort of structure to it. I guess I like – being able to have threads and subjects and, you know, like threaded discussions. Yeah, it's and got all of that. It's got, so when you create a, a community, you can have multiple moderators, by the way, which I'm sure will be nice for you. We have one for Twit and uh, the tech guy. It's called um, 
Uh, this is Twit and uh, Team Tech Guy, if you want to look at them. And uh, you can create just like it's more like a forum. You can create subheadings. So like I have on Team Tech Guy, help me. And so you can create something within that category. You, but you can when you post it also can be post wide. Um, threading is not is only by question, right? So you say something and then people respond to that. Say something, people respond to that. Which okay. is kind of like a forum, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So good. I, I think they've done a good job with communities and, and uh Anyway, yeah, I know it's too late for this one, but just for future reference. I'll go check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in totally randomness, I just I got a note from 23andme.com mm-hmm. um, n- noting that their price has dropped to $99. Good. So, yes, they're, you know, they're dropping the price down as quantity increases. They're, they're, they, they recognize that you and I paid a lot more than yeah. that. Yeah. And to make us feel okay, they they're explaining... That? That the the reason they're the reason they're doing this is for to get the benefit of this for everyone. They need to increase the sample size. Right. They Got need it. the largest database of DNA they can get. And I will say that the people I've turned on to it have just had a ball. Um, you get a little test tube that you drool into for a few minutes, um, and and then you snap the cap closed, which releases a a, a suspension agent and you shake it up and stick it in a postage paid box and it goes away and and a few weeks later you have access to a, a really compelling interesting uh breakdown of what's known about your dna based on you know all of the feedback that they've received so uh anyway uh it's only 99 dollars now so making it increasingly affordable Cool. Speaking of increasingly affordable. Yes. I have a little spin ride story uh, from a Dan uh, Sp- Spengeman, I think. S-P-E-N-G-E-M-A-N. Spengeman. Uh, he's in Shrewsbury, New Jersey. I'm sure he knows who he is. And he, the subject line he used caught my attention said, spin right equals cookies. And I was like, what? Uh-oh. Okay. Hey, Stephen Leo. Uh, that you're, you're Leo. Uh, longtime listener, LastPass user, and now we have the, the increasingly common term, blah, 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 to fill in for all the other how much <laughs> they love us. Ditto, ditto, ditto. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I work for an IT consulting firm in central New Jersey, dealing almost exclusively with business computers on a contractual basis. We are not a break slash fix shop, but as is sometimes the case, we agree to take in a laptop that was outside of our agreement contract. The laptop was for a good client that had several critical, crucial pictures. The only copy, I might add, of damage left by Hurricane Sandy to their home. Wow. That needed, to, so you can imagine they why they absolutely us. had to have them. Yeah. Uh, that needed to be sent to the appropriate insurance company. If these could not be recovered, there'd be a lot more tears shed over this horrific natural disaster. Upon receiving the personal laptop, we attempted to boot, only to have the Vista progress bar continually scroll across without ever loading the Windows environment. Having seen this before, I promptly loaded a copy of Spinrite and ran a level two scan. It came across one unrecoverable sector, recovered others, and then got stuck at about 4.22%. I waited a while, then rebooted the laptop and left the room for a bit. 
I came back to see the computer running through a Windows check disk, encountering several orphan files and finding some unrecoverable data. However, it continued to run, rebooted on its own, ran another check disk on its own, and, much to my surprise and delight, the laptop is back up and wow. running perfectly. Wow. I, I ran another check disk as a precaution, which came back totally clean. But I plan on rerunning Spinrite to ensure it gets the GRC seal of approval. I called the client, and they were elated. So much so that we're getting some homemade baked goods as a token of their appreciation. Oh, that's the cookies. So when I get fat off of sugar-coated goodies, I have you to thank and blame. There's a little tongue sticking out, you know, (laughs) colon and a P. It says, thanks for a great product and a great podcast. Awesome. Dan. Awesome. So thank awesome. you, Dan. We're going to get to QR codes in a, uh, a moment. Just a reminder that the holidays are coming. Time to get a geek gift. And I just wanted to point you towards uh, our sponsor, BespokePost.com. Bespoke Post is a very cool um, place where you can get monthly gifts sent out to the geek in your life. It's for guys. Uh, I just got I got a beautiful a wine decanter. I was sharing that with you earlier. They've got the the fabulous um, the current one is the uh, slate box with that Brooklyn. I would show you, but I took it home. The with the Brooklyn slate and, and includes the soapstone. So you put the cheese on there. You write down what the cheese is. The Casalingo handcrafted Italian salami, which was incredible. The Rick's Pick Smokra, the Manzanillo EV olive oil, and eighteen year reserve balsamic, which. Is still here, and I'm hoping Dvorak doesn't steal it from me. And the bourbon brittle, which is long gone. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the deal: uh, six boxes, two hundred seventy bucks. Three boxes, one hundred thirty-five bucks. One box, forty-five bucks. Uh, free shipping. Skip a box anytime. You get to see ahead of time what the box is going to be. But I tell you, you're going to love these. Your curated gifts. And when you go to bespokepost.com/twit, you'll save twenty percent off your first box. A very nice gift that the guy in your life will thank you for bespokepost.com slash twit QR codes so okay Um, I'm very impressed with the design of these not everything I can say that of Um, and I'm impressed that this was done 18 years ago I mean that that's Oh, it's a long time ago to have the kind of foresight that the designers of these codes had. They were originally done, they were created for rapid tracking of automotive parts uh, for during automobile assembly in Japan. And um, uh, they're just, you know, they were done right. So uh, if... People listening have access to one. If there's one around you, uh, maybe your phone, like, you know, for example, Starbucks, uh, their, their, the Starbucks app for uh, scanning their loyalty program uses a QR code barcode. So you could look at that. If there's one around that you can look at when I'm discussing them, uh, you'll have a better time visualizing what I'm talking about. If not, you can you know, remember some of this stuff and then check one out when you see it. Um, the, the, the codes are designed, these little, they're, they're, they're square. They always have an island, what they refer to as a quiet zone around them. 
So they're so they're they're designed to to stand by themselves. If they're a sticker, then they're in in the middle of a sticker that's got some white margin, so that so that there's a so-called quiet zone. What you know, the cool things about them is that they are orientation neutral, so that you can you don't have to be exactly face on. You don't have to have them exactly upright. Um, the the they provide all of the information necessary from their image to allow software to essentially spin them around and and orient them and flatten them even if you you take a picture of them at the at an angle so the most the, the most prominent features on the QR code are three large targets that are out at the very at three out of the four far corners of the QR code. And of course, it's not it's not two targets or or four because you want to get a quick rotational orientation. So they chose three to use three rather than one because three gives you an, an immediate sense of of size um and 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 uh, angular orientation at the same time. There's a a smaller target in the remaining fourth corner. If you're in the way QR codes are normally oriented, if the if the three big targets are both at the top and then also over on the left, then it's the lower right corner that is missing the big one, which is an instant cue for rotational orientation. There is a target there, however. It's four bits in and four bits uh, into the left and four bits up from the bottom uh, is a smaller target. The coolest feature that you would not notice until you know about it and you're about to know about it and you can check for it for on every QR code you ever see and it will always be there and you'll know something no one else knows because it's not obvious, but it's just, I, lo- I love this, is that linking the inner corners of the three big targets is what is a clock track essentially if you if you look between the the upper left and the upper right inner corners you will see on off on off on off on off on off on off that is it is a 50% duty cycle. Um, it's always looks exactly like that. And the same thing from the upper left to, to the lower left target has the same on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. So that provides the reference clocking information um, that for the, the size and, um, uh, and a additional position orientation of the, of the code. Um, there's um, the actual code itself has um, a a format number and a version number, which are are stored in the bits immediately surrounding the three large targets. So the so sort of the 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 the, the closest surrounding bits. Of the three targets contains, which is also obviously um, always easy to find, 
and at a known location, given that you know where the targets are, um, tells the software what the version number and format of this particular QR code is. The, the densities range from 1 to 40, so you have a huge range of storage. Um, and you can store an amazing number of, of characters on, on the order of, I think it's 2,000 characters. They're not quite 8 bits because of the way they encode them. The, they use a strange, like a 45-character set. So it's all uppercase and then a bunch of special characters. Enough, though, that you are able to encode non-case-sensitive URLs. And then there are, there are you know, there, there's like a, there's a binary mode where you do store full 8-bit bytes. So um, the actual encoding starts at the, at the lower right corner in the very far corner and um, the codes are stored in blocks of two by four. Um, the reason they're done in two by four is that they would like them to be as square as possible so that the bits in a byte occupy a smaller surface area. A lot of attention has been given to error correction because it's recognized that for these to be robust in, in the environment, they might, you know, they might get torn. They might have a, a, a you know, a, a black mark through them or they could even have a chunk missing. And in fact, the, the error correction technology can also have, it can range, they, there's low, medium, and then the third one they call quartile, or high, so low, medium, quartile, and high. Um, at the high, highest level of error correction, fully two thirds of the surface area of the of the QR code is is involved with error correction. But but that means that in return for committing to having that much redundancy, in return for that. You're able to lose as much of a third of the QR code tag, and in fact, um, Wikipedia has a has has a sample that I ran across where they've written the word Wikipedia right across the center body of the QR code. Yet you can still read Wikipedia's URL because, despite the fact that you just obliterated a, a chunk of the QR code, because error correction makes up for What's missing, and and this is the same Reed Solomon style error correction code that hard drives use, and for very much the same reason. In the same way that you might have a little a little defect on the surface that causes you to miss a, a a physical region on the drive, you similarly could have a physical defect in the QR code, you know, tag printing, or as I said, a smudge, or or something you know dropped on top of it, or got a part of it got torn off. So this technology allows for robust recovery of, of any missing data. As a consequence, they don't want to string the bits out in a, in a long string because that, that, that doesn't model as well the kind of defects that they expect that the tag might suffer. Well, so they'd like them to be like a three-by-three three square but that doesn't work for 8-bit bytes, so they, they compromised to a 2 by 4 tile. 
So essentially, there are two by four tiles that run along one edge and then turn. It's not in a raster scan where it jumps back to where it began and moves over. Instead, it turns around and heads back the way it came two bits over. And then it turns around again and heads back. And if you're if you find yourself at all curious about this, the way the way they handled the details are a little bizarre because the the tiles will interact with these targets and 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 these other fixed aspects of of the code which represent barriers and they sometimes they skip over them or sometimes they slide around them yet they've they've come up with a disciplined clear way of handling every instance uh, which ends up in some cases creating these weird sort of pentomino shaped things that all fit together but the spec handles it and the software knows how to deal with it now one problem that they encountered uh, again I'm, I'm impressed by how clever they were was that it would be possible when you think about it for the data to emulate the fixed features of the QR code. That is, we remember, and, and so you would call that in-band signal, signaling. You'd have, this, there would be an in-band signaling problem, which is the, the information theory term for the, 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 the problem that you are, you're, you're trying to have formatting data that tells us about not the actual content, which you want to have separate from the content, yet you're just printing this all with ink. So how do we know what's data and what's formatting? So the designers of this said, okay, well, we're going to lay out these this, this information, but what if the information we lay out looks like like a target, for example? For example, what, what, for, for, for one thing, what if there's a big white space in the middle? That would be a problem. Because all of these technologies, even back to hard disk drives, the hard disk drives are what's known as self-clocking technologies, meaning that the, rather than wasting space by having a clock signal or clock track in addition to the data, they arrange for the data to be self-clocking, for the, for the data to provide its own timing information. The way you do that is you you deliberately make sure there are not, for example, in the case of a hard drive, a whole bunch of zeros. If you had a whole bunch of zeros where zeros meant nothing is happening, then the problem is when you when something finally does happen, you need to know exactly how many things didn't happen. And that can be dicey if the if if the hard drive is not spinning at a constant pace. Similarly here, if there was if there was, for example, some some stretching or or a wrinkle in the, the the QR code, that could cause a local change in in the the frequency of the pattern that's laid out in the visual field. So you wouldn't want to have a big solid black blob because you might have a problem knowing exactly how long it was or what size it was, and that's crucial especially on a, on a high-density code taken from far away, um, crucial for knowing how many bits are there. So what, what these guys do is one of the, the formatting 
controls actually lays down a mask which is used to XOR the entire data set. Um, and we've talked about XORing before. We've, we, we discuss it often in, in crypto. We know that when you XOR something, you are selectively inverting bits. And if you re-XOR it and selectively re-invert the same bits, you get back to the original thing you had. So the XOR process is, is perfect because it's very simple to do. And, and depending upon the nature of the data which the QR code contains, they, they have a, like a, like a library of, I think it's eight different XOR patterns which are, are mathematically derived from the X and Y coordinate um, of a little eight by eight patch. So it's an eight by eight pattern that, for example, one of them is a checkerboard. Uh, one of them are, are vertical stripes. Uh, another one is horizontal stripes separated by um, two areas of white and, and so forth. So what, what, the, what the QR encoder does is first it lays out a non-masked, non-XORed, that is, QR code. And then it's got criteria for things that would be a problem, like long runs of ones or zeros or or just a coincidental formation of a blob somewhere because of the way the zigzagging pattern happened to have the bytes fall. So what it does is it then applies each one of the eight different masks to, to get eight different candidate QR codes and then using the algorithms for its criteria for judging the quality of them it picks the one which it likes the best, which is, you know, which best meets whatever criteria it has. Basically, you know, there aren't any confusing structures. There, 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 there's, you know, it's broken all the data up. There are no blobs and so forth. So um, it ends up um, choosing one of those masks, and that's part of the encoding information which goes into it. And then finally... We starting at as I said at the lower right corner there is a there is an encoding type which is four bits then a length which is eight bits followed by that much data and at the end of that there can be another encoding and another length and more data so you're you're able to have multiple formats of data in a single QR code uh, you're able to have variable density you're able to have a variable amount of error correction and, and understand that error correction means redundancy. So the more error correction you have, the, the larger percentage of the whole area is not data. So there's a, there, there's a natural tension between how much, how much area are we going to commit for error correction versus how much data are we trying to store. However, all of the QR tags are square. And the original designers recognized that there might be a situation where they wanted a lot of data, but the, but the square aspect ratio was a problem. So rather than confuse the code 
by allowing non-square QR codes, they instead created an, a way of appending codes. So it's possible, for example, to have eight little ones in a row to essentially give you a, a very rectangular stretched out single QR code. The, a properly equip, equipped reader that scans all eight of the little guys will recognize that the, the uh, essentially where they are and how to concatenate the data in the individual codes into one single large one. So, uh, so anyway, it's a it's a an old yet you know well designed technology. It, it, I, there's, it's not clear how you would improve it even today, 18 years after it was created. It was patented at the time. Um, of huh. course, by now, the patents have expired, but it was formally placed in – it was released to the public. Um, it was uh, – the patents were, were, were expressly there to keep the, the – you know, to keep control of it from a standardization standpoint – um, it's even the word QR code is trademarked, but anyone is free to use it. So th- this was done in a very open intellectual property fashion, just like you would expect. And of course, that's one of the reasons that, that it has been such, such, such a success. That and the fact that because very much like the Internet, because it was really done right, it was designed with an amazing amount of foresight. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a technology that we can use today for quickly transmitting data. And of course, that's also the problem because it's something that that our smartphones can read and interpret that looks just like dust to us. Just like, okay, what, you know, we, I mean, we all know what they are now. Um, as I was saying at the beginning of the show, I have a, I have, I was, I was looking around, I bought some Starbucks uh, espresso roast uh, and there's a, you know, a little QR code on the bag that, uh, I don't know if my smartphone is supposed to read it, but it's got all of the characteristics that I mentioned. I see the little, the little alternating pattern between the the inner corners of the three big targets and and the little target four bits up and four bits over from the lower right and so forth. I mean, now um, it's very possible to sit down if I <laughs> I needed to and figure out what this thing says. The real question is why anybody would take the time to take a picture of it um, when you could just I mean probably just send you to Starbucks.com, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might it might be used for their own manufacturing process. Oh, it might be right. the the the. Is it better than a barcode from that point of view? Is more data? Um, it yeah, it is more data. Um, uh, and that's really the only difference. It, it, it essentially it's a you can think of it as a two dimensional barcode. Right. Um, and you know, barcodes, one dimensional barcodes that are like like that we still see on the backs of books and things are 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 stripes. And so they're meant to be read by a one-dimensional reader. Normally, that's a, a, a laser beam spun by a mirror, and we, you know, we always see that at at, at the checkout stand mm-hmm. at Barnes and Noble or in uh, su- supermarkets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so there, there, there's a beam that sort of opportunistically scans across it, and and there's there's certainly a protocol there also, but it's it's only able to represent something like a UPC. You know, right, like a right. universal product code, um, and and nothing much more complex. As I remember, Here, there are a number of barcode uh, protocols. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Here, um, we can; w- these things can be used to represent anything you want. And 
what has happened, the reason if you if you were to Google QR space code space danger, for example, <laughs> um, I mean, it is it's all over the place. Um, the bad guys have figured out that people like these and people are, you know, taking pictures of them. Um, they're, I mean, the advertisers are leveraging it. You'll see a poster with one and it's like here, you know, take a picture of this, go to our website. Well, what's happening now is that popular QR codes are being covered up with stickers to take people places other than where the poster, which you would tend to trust, would take you. Um, and as I mentioned before, I read some articles where, you know, people just like see a barcode in a bathroom. Right. <laughs> I mean, a for QR a good time. code is like, <laughs> for a good time. QR this. <laughs> Exactly. But now that's so, an implementation issue because the camera can take a picture and say, hey, I'm about to send you to. Uh, yes. Do they automatically go to that site currently? So there are, there, are two, there are two problems. One is that we're depending upon the implementation right. to be, well, the implementation of the interpreter to be correct. Notice that the implementation of the flash interpreter right. has been a problem since it's since it was born. As a consequence, we have all these problems called buffer overflows. Well, it's entirely possible to have a buffer overflow in the QR code interpreter. I don't know that any exist. I hope that one never does because what that would do is is essentially override the best intentions of the software that was interpreting the QR code. Um, in the same way, for example, that a buffer overflow down in our TCP IP stack used to cause problems before the packet even got to the firewall. So even the firewall wouldn't protect us if just the act of receiving the packet allowed a bad guy to take over the operating system. If the act of viewing, it would be literally, the act of seeing this particular pattern would, would could cause data to be overwritten on the stack and take over your smartphone. So there's, there's that problem. Um, and then exactly as you say, Leo, the question is, what does the phone do? And what is unfortunately the case now is that there, there are, hundreds of QR code readers and and they're also being built in natively into the platforms and we have the tension between convenience and security because there's something a little extra sexy about you know just taking a picture of it and whoop you're already you're automatically there at the website this has been enough of a problem that for example Symantec has a free product now in beta which I would recommend to anybody who thinks QR codes are interesting. It's called Norton Snap, and it's available for free for iOS and Android. And it, it does just what you said, Leo. Uh, but one more thing, it also does reputation checking. So you, you take a picture of a QR code that you believe leads you to a website, and Norton Snap will intercept it, check the reputation of that site, give you a big, okay, green ball or, a you know, warn you off with a red 
who knows what, skull and crossbones, but and it also deobfuscates the QR code. I mean, that's the that's the least you would want, I think, is to have the QR code interpreted for you by the QR code scanner in your phone, be able to just eyeball the domain. I mean, if it's like we're going to get you .cn or ru or something, it's like, okay, I don't, I don't think I'm going to click that link. So it'd be really nice if it was a two if it was a two step process. The code was converted to a URL. You then had to manually click, you know, like acknowledge that this is where you want to go, giving you a chance to see what's there. At the moment, many of these don't. They like the whole magic carpet ride, just, you know, wave your phone and off you go. Um, it's important for our listeners to know, not surprisingly, I mean, once again, if it can be done, it will. The bad guys have figured out that this is a way to get people to to execute URLs that you know, under a, a, a false pretext by like, you know, putting stickers over existing codes and replacing them. And you might think, oh, that's probably, you know, you know, there's a new code from what they had before. Well, no, someone with malicious intent came by and covered up the real one. I, you know, I, uh, another use for QR codes is uh, both LastPass and um, Google use a QR code to add to Google Authenticator. I guess it's probably Google Authenticator that's doing it and LastPass is supporting it. But when you want to uh, set up Google Authenticator on your smartphone to use with LastPass or Google's two-step authentication, they put a QR code on the screen, which nice. you click. It's a beautiful and, way to send information and from... Links to this. Yeah. Yes. No data entry. You don't have to enter magic code or anything like that. And it is Very instantaneous. Cool. Google, of course, has Google Goggles, which is a QR code reader. I would imagine uh, they keep an eye on uh, that. And then there's another I'm one sure. that's that's very widely used on Android um, that almost everybody has. I think it's just called Bar Barcode Reader or something like that. <laughs> it's kind of a generic name, and uh, and it does bring up a URL, and you're so that you're you able know, to look. You know, I was at trying it. to find a QR code in here so I could take a picture of it. I guess <laughs> I could just go to Wikipedia and do that um, because I'm curious. I don't know. Um, so uh, let me, I'll tell you what, let's go to the Wikipedia QR code. There's uh, even, by the way, a QR code website um, from the original innovators, uh, the Japanese guys. It is sort of a rough translation to English, but it's much better than my, than my Japanese. Um, so you can just uh, take a picture of that and it, or show that. How do you get a QR code to it? You upload oh, it? No, oh, no. Uh, that one is just a, a, a site for... Um, you know, like like where the spec lives ah, and, and so forth. I see. But yeah, Wikipedia or or just put in uh, j j just Google QR code and you get all there's kinds plenty. of stuff. Yeah, I don't know why yeah, I was having right. such there, a hard time. There's images for QR code. Yeah. And there is a I ran across a site too. Uh, I think it's that one. Let me uh, let me just try. I have Google goggles on here. Um, let me try that one. And we'll just scan a QR code, and it—it's good actually. It's done—it's done exactly what you would want it to do, which good. is it's interpreted what it saw in the camera. It was, yep. says Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia, and it gives you the URL, and then I can tap a button if nice. I would like to do something with it, including I, I presume go to the web page. Yeah, so that's nice. that's the Google goggles. So it interprets and then gives you a chance to back out if you don't like what you. Yeah, the uh, one see. the one thing, I mean, so you certainly want that feature and I would say, you know, 
don't go crazy with 50 different ones yeah. of these. Pick because, some well-known ones. You don't want... Yes, exactly. Exploits. You, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'll try the other ones. Uh, I don't have it on here, I think. I just use Google Goggles when I need a barcode reader. There's also Red Laser, which was one of the very first barcode scanner apps. They've been around for a long time. I'm sure they're safe. Yeah, the ZX Ing team does one called Barcode Scanner. Let me... I have that also on my phone. Let me... Oh, yeah, same thing. Actually, it's quite good. In fact, this gives you a lot more. Uh, this is another another uh, good one. It gives this is barcode scanner from ZX Team. It gives you the URL. It tells you what it is, and it also even gives you some information about the format of the QR code, an image of the QR oh. code, the date, some metadata. You cool. can open in the browser, share via email or share via SMS. So this is you know I would say these two, which are the most commonly used on uh, on Android, are probably yep. Just stick fine. with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right, Steve. Good. I'm glad we covered that. That's a great subject. I'm fascinated by all that. I, I've wanted to. I wanted to dig down and understand them for some time. And uh, now everybody who's listening to the podcast knows everything that you and I do. So now you know the rest <laughs> of the story. We uh, we do this show every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time. 1900 UTC on twit.tv. Please watch live. I love it because we can interact with the chat room and I can, you know, get that into the show. But if you can't, you can always listen after the fact. There's audio and video available on demand. Steve has two unique on-demand features. Of course, we always have, you know, the audio and video on the Twit site. But Steve has two unique formats. One is a 16 kilobit audio for the really small audio file. And if you're a small audio file, you'll enjoy it. And... He has the, uh, the the text transcript, which is an even smaller version. But I think most people get the show and read the text transcript. But it's a nice feature because it's also Google searchable. So it's a good way to find the contents of those shows. Uh, all of the shows are available on his site, grc.com, as well as our site, twit.tv, and wherever better podcasts are aggregated like iTunes and all the other <laughs> all the other ones. You'll find other great things like Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility at grc.com, Gibson researchcorporation.com uh, lots of freebies as well and Steve's on Twitter as at, at SGGRC he tweets there regularly with links yep. and stuff Steve thanks so much uh, I look thanks. forward to doing a special Steve yes. Gibson uh, from the 90s let's record our opener at the beginning of next week I'll come in early just for you cool yeah or if I don't, we'll just do it <laughs> at yeah. the beginning of next week. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm having a hard time getting here on time, let alone early. <laughs> All right. No Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Thanks, Leo. We'll see you all next time on Security Now. Security Now.